One thing that many people don't realize is that the gears of our federal government, and quite frankly, most of the way that Congress works, they just grind you know, like in, inexhaustibly in a liberal direction. You have to realize that the vast majority of our federal agencies are staffed by Democrats. Now, look, the reality is that many of those people are career civil servants, or in the State Department, you have career civil servants and foreign service officers. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the demographics surrounding DC, this area is 90% Democrat voters. Yeah. So who do you think those people voted for, right? And we know who they voted for, right? The entire State Department was expecting the coronation of Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And many folks at the State Department were hoping to go to the National Security Council, to go to the White House. So there was great weeping and gnashing of teeth at the State yeah. Department, in particular after <laughs> Trump won. So when you come in there as a Trump appointee and somebody who is unapologetically pro-Trump and willing to help him execute his agenda, you're a pariah immediately. I mean, those and they look at you like you don't belong there, right? These these folks, the, particularly the folks who populate our foreign service um, officers, uh, uh, you know, regiment are people who are like elite educated, coastal elites, Harvard, Yale, Ivy, you know, and they, you know, they don't they don't see the world the same way that Trump does. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. I'm your host, Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment, and today I am joined by William Wolf. But before I get to uh, introducing William, uh, I got to make my you know traditional plug for American Moment. Uh, you can find all things American Moment at AmericanMoment.org. Imagine that. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, actually, I think basically all social media platforms at ammoment.org. Um, on our website and various social media platforms, you'll find more information about all of our programming, um, our Fellowship for American Statecraft, Foundations of American Statecraft, AM Fridays, um, AM Canon, which is our uh, content um, generation and collation platform. A um, lot of really cool stuff um, on our website. We're going to be very busy this year um, working on a lot of new initiatives. Um, today, uh, we had on William Wolf, uh, who, you know, if you spend any time uh, on Twitter at all, can be tweeting from about anything from, uh, you know, Ukraine to Christian nationalism to pictures of his cute kids. You know, it's like, He's 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 all over the place, but he's really, really fun uh, uh, follow and is doing a lot of interesting work. Um, we had a, a very fascinating conversation today. Uh, we covered his time uh, working at the State Department and the Department of Defense. Uh, so kind of the first half of the episode, we talk about how you can get a job in a future presidential administration, um, how that works, uh, what the deep state was trying to do to um, uh, prevent a lot of the president's policies. Um, and then the latter half of the episode, we spent talking about Christian nationalism, the new uh, boogeyman for the mainstream media. Um, it was a very, very entertaining uh, uh, episode. William's a really cool guy, um, and we really look forward to following uh, his progress um, over the next couple of years. Um, William is a 10-year uh, veteran of the conservative political movement. Uh, he served as the as a uh, senior official in the Trump administration. Trump administration, both as a deputy assistant secretary of defense at the Pentagon and a director of legislative affairs at the Department of State. Prior to his service in the administration, William worked for Heritage Action for America and as a congressional staffer for three different members of Congress, including the former Congressman Dave Bratt. He has a bachelor's in history from Covenant College and a master's of divinity at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, combining his political experience and theological education, William plans to pursue a PhD with a focus on Christian ethics and public theology, enter pastoral ministry, and engage at the intersection of faith and politics, cultural commentary, and Christian worldview issues. Originally from outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, he is married to Lauren Wolf, and they have three boys, Evan, Jack, and Daniel. We will go now to William Wolf. William, thanks for coming on the pot. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. So uh, you know how we like to start the show, ask more about our uh, guest background, how they got where they are. Uh, who is William Wolf? What's his deal? He's, <laughs> he's foreign policy. He's um, Christian politics. He's everywhere. What's your story? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Good uh, chance to introduce myself to the American Moment 
audience. Uh, really thankful for your organization and what you guys are doing. I think it's a, a critical piece of sort of the future of the new rights. I don't know if you align yourself with that, but uh, whatever hopes we have for uh, hopefully a better staffed Republican administration, I greatly appreciate that considering some of the people I had to work with <laughs> in, uh, in the previous administration. Um, Thanks. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm from North Carolina originally, but then I, I went to college in Georgia at Covenant College, uh, PCA College. I studied history. I thought about uh, my goal was to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I might still go to law school. We'll see. But uh, then I moved to D.C. a couple of years after I graduated, uh, came here primarily to go to a church after I became a Christian and went to Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And the the job sort of followed suit. I came here. For, I came here for a church, but then I needed work and uh, in a pretty unconventional fashion, I think back then when you could just walk into congressional office buildings, <laughs> I literally just put on a suit and tie, printed off my resume, looked up North Carolina offices and just walked straight in and dropped my resume off. Wow. Um, and I got a call back uh, from from one of them, not with a job offer, but with an unpaid yeah. internship. Nice. <laughs> and I took it. And uh, because, you know, I was just starting out. And so I took that unpaid internship and then I got a job waiting tables. And so I waited tables nights and weekends unpaid internship in the congressional office. Where did you wait tables? P.F. Chang's up at nice. Friendship Heights. <laughs> That's yeah. quite a hike for me. Yeah, man. it was a big red line trip. Um, but it was great, man. And what it was, um, you could call it a life sustainability job. Now, I know that these days a lot of internships are paid around here. Mm. But I, as, I've, as I have counseled people looking to get work in D.C., I tell them you kind of need to be here. Like you need to move here and be committed to that. And then if you're doing something like an unpaid internship, get a job that supports you until a, a full time job materializes. So then I got hired as a legislative uh, correspondent. Um, in the office of uh, Rick Berg from North Dakota. He ran okay. against Heidi Heitkamp in 2012. Yep. And uh, yeah, so election night 2012, I'm in Fargo, North Dakota. And uh, nice. my first job went away because <laughs> yeah. he did not he did not win that. So then I actually got uh, hired back to the office of Congresswoman Virginia Fox as a legislative correspondent for them. Mm -hmm. Worked for her for a couple of years. Um, and then became a legislative assistant for Dave Bratt, you know, sort of yep. hero of the conservative movement. It's fascinating, Nick, if you look at the issues that Dave Bratt ran on in that surprise insurgent primary victory against Cantor, mm -hmm. it was two main things, immigration restriction that benefits Americans and uh, an economic policy that benefits our country as a whole. Essentially, the two main issues that Trump ran on. Yeah. Trump, uh, he was just sort of like a forerunner for Trump. So then I worked for him, had a chance to go work at Heritage Action uh, with Russ Vote over there back in the heyday. Um, oh, so you guys have known each other for like a long time. Oh, yeah. Russ has been sort of like a political mentor for me in many okay. ways. Awesome. Um, speaking about, for those who might not know, speaking about Russ Vote, he runs the Center for Renewing America. And he was the uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget for Trump. He's and a fantastic. former Moment of Truth guest. And a former Moment of Truth guest, <laughs> maybe a future one. Yeah. yeah. So uh, then I had a chance to work in the Trump administration. So um, maybe it was because I worked for Dave and I sort of saw those similarities. But when Trump came down that escalator, I thought this guy's got a real shot of going all the way. And I really liked his policies, quite frankly. You know, um, I was I was thrilled he won. Mm -hmm. uh, election night 2016, honestly, after the way that year went, felt like one of the greatest vindications <laughs> of my political instincts I've ever experienced. And I'm sure yeah. a lot of people feel the same way. And so I jumped at the chance to try to work in his administration. And so what that looked like was uh, volunteering for the Presidential Transition Organization, mm -hmm. uh, which is a little little entity that's get stood up and you become a sta an employee of that, but you don't get paid necessarily. I wasn't paid. And so I just... Uh, went over there sort of like reverse. I worked my day job at Heritage Action, then went over there nights and weekends. And uh, by doing that, I was able to get my name on a list as a potential a political appointee. And through God's grace and some providence, I ended up landing at the State Department. And how does that whole process work? You know, you, you hear a lot about um, the transition, um, and a lot about, uh, in Trump's case specifically, about how that was kind of where some of these staffing issues started, sure. to, started to go wrong. Um, so uh, what does that look like from your name being on a list to like actually being um, in know, an agency? Appointed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, Trump 
uh, we've hardly seen anything like Trump in political history for. I mean, the man yeah. was a true outsider, right? Never held an elected you know role in his life before he became president of the United States. And one of the things that really hamstrung Trump, uh, not it's not his fault, but the reality is that the establishment figures who were there to help him out through that first transition weren't looking out for the interests of the Trump base of the people that put him into office. And so there was a lot of issues, you know, from from the get with the people that got into the administration. Um, but so the way that it works is, you know, it's funny, I was offered um, the the first people that get into the administration are come on, come in on what's called wave one beachhead. And those people go in like on noon on inauguration day. Mm-hmm. And I was actually offered a spot for wave one beachhead at the Department of Agriculture, but I had no interest in going to the Department of Agriculture. So I turned yeah. that down, which was a little bit risky. And so I think my name ended up on a list for like wave three at the State Department. Mm -hmm. And so then you're just kind of waiting to see what has to happen is you get a White House liaison that works for the administration embedded in an agency. And then they communicate with the Office of Presidential Personnel and then the respective offices within those agencies. And then they put politicals in there. And, you know, you have to be agreed, you know, the office director, say the secretary, you know, Mm -hmm. has to agree to hire you. White House has to sign off on it. White House liaison has to sign off on it. So it's kind of like firing a nuke. You got to put in three keys. And yeah. uh, for me, the way that it worked is that I had a buddy who went in to be uh, Rex Tillerson's first speechwriter. Mm. And he knew that the Legislative Affairs Office needed help. And so the lady who was the Assistant Secretary of Legislative Affairs, Mary Waters, uh, he sent her my resume. So there's there's step one. Mary Waters gets my resume. And she says, I need help doing House Affairs here at the State Department. So she brings me in for an interview. Then I talk to PPO, then the White House liaison. And that's that's how you make it in. So it's it's quite a combination. But at the end of the day, here in D.C., it all, always comes down to who do you know? Who yeah. can put in that call for you, right? Who can get your resume in front of somebody? Well, and, and, and the other thing, too, is that, uh, you know, people don't realize, I think, sometimes how compressed and also how long this process can be right. drug out. Mm-hmm. So how long did it take in your instance? Yeah, that's right. Well, um, it took a couple of months, right? Particularly if you're going in somewhere where you need a security clearance. And that's what I was doing. So I had to go through the entire process to get a TSSCI security clearance. And uh, so I have to fill out all that paperwork and that has to get adjudicated, come in for an interview. And then for me, I think from sort of start to finish, it took a couple months. I mean, I landed, uh, I was in on the ground working in April, mm-hmm. 2017. So I joke, I say I did 45 for 45, 45 <laughs> months, not quite the full four years, but essentially yeah. that. Um, but, you know, as the administration goes on, it really, it really can take months. Like once, you know, once say an agency wants to hire an individual and then the process of getting all those sign offs, um, so I tell people who look to work in the administration uh, to be patient, but be ready, because when it's time to go, they'll get you in there as quick as possible. Yeah. To go back to the, uh, you know, you said your first office or offer was at uh, the Department of Agriculture. Yeah. So how does that like do they do they take your your interest on the front end or was it, you know, someone just knew you or they were just randomly placing people like what is that yeah folks like? folks who were working on the transition knew where staffing needs were right mm-hmm. and there were i think i guess there were just a need to put trusted conservatives somewhere at like agriculture got it um but that just wasn't my policy interest and it never has been my yeah. my policy interests have always been sort of america first issues and yeah. that includes foreign policy immigration policy and then here and our on our home soil issues pertaining to religion you know public morality freedom of speech and so uh, i was interested in going places like state or DHS or DOJ, um, even though I don't have a legal background to do like policy work. Um, yeah. But agriculture just wasn't what well, I yeah, wasn't, wasn't looking to do that. Yeah. Um, so when you when you land, you know, in the administration, uh, April 2017, mm-hmm. you know, you're doing uh, congressional relations. relations. Yeah. Legislative affairs. What? What is that yeah. like? I mean, especially like Trump's foreign policy 2017, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, was a lot of like congressional pushback and probably pushback, you know, internally. That's um, right. So uh, tell us, I guess, about both those things. Yeah. Well, one thing that many people don't realize is that the gears of our federal government and quite frankly, most of the way that Congress works, they just grind you know, like in, inexhaustibly in a liberal direction. You have to realize that the vast majority of our federal agencies are staffed by Democrats. Now, look, the reality is that many of those people are career civil servants or in the State Department, you 
have career civil servants and foreign service officers. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the demographics surrounding D.C., this area is 90 percent Democrat voters. Yeah. So who do you think those people voted for? Right. And we know who they voted for. Right. The entire State Department was expecting the coronation of Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And many folks at the State Department were hoping to go to the National Security Council to go to the White House. So there was great weeping and gnashing of teeth at the State yeah. Department, in particular after <laughs> Trump won. So when you come in there as a Trump appointee and somebody who is unapologetically pro-Trump and willing to help him execute his agenda, you're a pariah immediately. I mean, those and they look at you like you don't belong there, right? These these folks, the, particularly the folks who populate our foreign service um, officers, uh, uh, you know, regiment are people who are like elite educated, coastal elites, Harvard, Yale, Ivy, you know, and they, you know, they don't they don't see the world the same way that Trump does. So it was pretty fascinating. One story I'll tell you and is which really opened my eyes was in my first couple of weeks there, I was taking a group of individuals up to Capitol Hill to brief the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So that was kind of our main job, right? We liaison with the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We brief the staffers, brief the members. And Trump proposed some pretty drastic uh, budget cuts to the State Department in particular, 30% reduction. Mm -hmm. um, and on the way up there, these individuals, career, career civil servants who work at program managers and foreign service officers, did not know I was a political appointee. And they were talking in that car the whole time about how they were going to undermine what the president was wanting and sort of give Congress the tools to help prevent Trump from executing his vision, and at that point, Secretary Tillerson, his vision for the State Department. And it just really opened up my eyes to, I guess, what you could call the collusion of, yeah. you know, of your career civil servants and foreign service officers with primarily congressional Democrats or, quite frankly, congressional Republicans who want things to, to maintain, they want the status quo maintained. And what is that like? dragging of their feet and obstruction look like on a on a day to day basis? Like what kinds of things do they use to do that? Yeah, well, the you know, the interagency process or even an intra agency process, like within one agency of policymaking, they just can they can grind and slow stuff up, you know, incredibly. And so what it looks like is um, it looks at the very beginning of Trump says something like, hey, we need to, um, you know, we need to reduce, uh, you know, our footprint here or there, right? Mm -hmm. Then, then the program managers, or say, like, say Trump says, like, "Hey, look, this pro we're spending money on like promoting LGBT agenda in you know, South America, right? This like goes against their interests. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars." Well, then the first thing that whoever is you know in the Western Hemisphere Affairs Office does is they draft some memo defending sort of why that's in our interests. We've yeah. always been doing this, or we've been doing it for five years. Congress appropriated this money. We have to spend it this way. And yeah. so just the obstruction begins at the lowest level and works its way up. I was talking to some former um, appointees yesterday as well. And one of the things that's really interesting is how important the deputy secretary is in every organization. Because say, to say Trump says to you know Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Pompeo, or whoever, like, hey, make this change at your department. The first thing that that secretary does is kick it to the deputy secretary because the way it works is the secretary of an agency is sort of the outward, forward-facing individual, and the deputy manages everything within the agency. Mm -hmm. And so by the time something has worked its way up, a proposed policy change to the deputy secretary, if if he has not been ensuring that it's going in the right direction, I can almost guarantee that that memo, which is going to have like 20 clearance lines on it, yeah. is going to say, keep doing the same thing. And yeah. so then the deputy has to go fight all the way down the food chain to make that change. And so if you don't have a politically committed deputy secretary, again, these agencies are going to resist the changes that like someone like Trump would have proposed. Yeah. What were, uh, in your opinion, some of the biggest um, battles of the of your of your time there? Um, and like the the LGBTQIA, mm. you know, plus whatever rights in South America is funny. You know, the way these people defend this sort of thing is it's like, yeah, we've been promoting gender studies you know, in Kabul since 1776, maybe. right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like we've been doing this forever. Mm -hmm. What were some of the some of the biggest fights that you had to take on? Well, I mean, the biggest one right out of the gate, particularly for the State Department, was this proposed reduction in in our footprint in our overall uh, presence. You know, it was like a 30 percent uh, reduction in reorganization that 
was proposed, which is desperately needed. The State Department is wildly inefficient, and we spend uh, we spend billions of dollars every year on foreign policy aims and initiatives that return no discernible benefit to the American people. Um, it's sort of just this ongoing grift, you know, yeah. between these international, you know. Um, agencies and and organizations that get USAID money or State Department money. So uh so, so that was a that was a huge fight right out of the gate. Uh and then, you know, other issues too in the foreign policy sphere was just sort of Trump's constant desire that everything we do would benefit America. So I think of, you know, I ended up over at DOD too, and towards the end of the administration, Trump was proposing reducing our footprint in Africa, reducing, um, you know, reducing some of our footprint in Europe as well. And again, that's just an absolute like knife fight because all the congressional interests uh, want to stop that. Everybody in the national security apparatus wants to stop that. And so at every step of the way, you're you're fighting to help enact this policy that the president wants because he believes that that was the mandate given to him by the American people. And uh, you just have to fight the interests every step of the way. So I want to talk a little bit about like the the reason behind that, like why there's such a resist. You know, you think about um like liberals and you you mm-hmm. should think you know frequently in american history you know they're they're more dovish they're like mm-hmm. you know less um uh predisposed to like going to war mm-hmm. um but these days it's it's weird all the liberals love they love being like all over the world in all mm-hmm. places at all times you know uh fighting all these wars doing all these like covert actions mm-hmm. uh why do you think that like why are they so resistant to this um, you know, idea that we would want to be a nation at peace and that that's good for the American people. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously coming out of it's hard to underscore how um, how it really was America that got to set the course of the modern world after World War II. Mm-hmm. Europe was devastated, you know, Japan devastated, you know, uh, Germany devastated. And Americans own the world after World War II um, until sort of we move into the Cold War era. And obviously we have some pretty major setbacks with Vietnam and, and Korea. You know, we lose, we lose and draw. And um, but, you know, we got to reshape sort of the, the modern world and really these ideas of what's called an open society, uh, which comes from this book by this guy, Karl Popper, who who wrote a defense of sort of this open society and how to prevent a World War III. And it's called the Open Society and its Enemies. Well, let me let, I'll let you know, we're the enemies of the open yeah. society. <laughs> and actually, you know, interestingly enough, George Soros actually wrote uh, uh, an introduction to a, a later edition of this book. I mean, the Soros uh-huh. programs are called the Open Society programs. Yeah. And it was this idea that we have to downplay national like loyalties and identities. But anyway, all this all this sort of leads into the idea of sort of America as the exporter of liberal democracy and open societies. Mm-hmm. And everywhere that, you know, there's entrenchment against that, we need to get involved and sort of make, make we need to go make Afghanistan a liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. And of course, our reasons for going to Afghanistan uh, in 2001 were very justifiable. But then what we did for 20 plus years after that was try to restructure Afghanistan from a civic, uh, you know, perspective into like our own image. And the reality is they're not going to govern themselves like that. I mean, it's yeah. incredibly corrupt. So all that to say is essentially it's the America as the exporter of liberal democracy and open society. And there is, uh, I would say, a very sort of disingenuous way that people on the right and left talk about someone like me or others, or Trump's foreign policy as being sort of retreatist. And, and it's not that. It's w- when Trump was in office, our allies respected us and our enemies feared us. Yeah. And and he was and he was honestly one of the most successful foreign policy presidents I think we've ever had. No, I totally, I totally agree with that. Um, the the slur that I always seen thrown around is. Um, Isolationist. Yeah, isolationist. That's the one. Like yeah. you, oh, you just want to like close your country, not mm-hmm. not have to deal with anybody else, mm-hmm. and um, just do whatever you want. Whereas, you know, I mean, he went all over the world. We killed brought, Suleimani. Yeah, like brought brought world leaders here. I mean, he's he. I think, frankly, many of them were probably terrified of him, yeah. you know uh, of of what uh, he might do. I'm I'm curious to hear more about your time. You know, I know that state and uh dod are you know kind of go together they're Mm -hmm. interconnected in a lot of ways um tell us about how you ended up 
in this role at, at mm-hmm. DOD, what mm-hmm. your tell us about your super fancy title and <laughs> what your uh, responsibilities were. Yeah, sure. So after um, about three years at the State Department, I started out as a congressional advisor there. And, you know, um, I was reflecting on my, upon my time in the administration and sort of just like key takeaways that I would give folks looking to sort of, uh, you know, enter into an administration as a political appointee and to succeed if they can, which is tough, you know. And so I, I kind of at first I did two things, two H's, head down and hard work. Right. Mm-hmm. Just try to keep my head down. You know, when you're in those earlier entry roles, you, you can't. You can't change things so much, but what you can do is gather information. Um, you can you can channel that information in productive ways to particularly uh, folks outside of that agency or connect political connections at the White House who need to know what's happening under their watch, right? Like yeah. in the ways that the agencies are revolting against them. So put your head down, do hard work. And so I was a congressional advisor, and then eventually I was uh, promoted to be the. Uh, the director of house affairs. So I was the director of house affairs in this office of legislative affairs at the state department. And again, my main role there was liaisoning with the house foreign affairs committee, working with staffers and members to, you know, advocate and defend the, you know, the Trump administration's foreign policy goals, prepare ambassadors for testimony, you know, uh, you know, I tell people like, hey, you see these pictures of these people testifying at Congress? Well, I'm, I was one of the guys sitting behind them. Right? Oh, and yeah. That's my They're always role. making fun of the guy, like making the weird yeah, face that's right. or like yeah. whatever. I actually yeah. got a pretty, there's a inc- pretty sweet photo. Brian Hook was the uh, sort of special representative on Iran at the State mm-hmm. Department. And again, like talk about the, the false charge of isolationists. We ran an incredibly brutal and extracting pressure campaign on Iran, you know, trying to prevent them from pursuing, you know, nuclear capabilities. And we crushed them when we were in office. And now again, you know, Obama empowered them, Trump crushed them, and now Biden's empowering them again. That's mm-hmm. not, you know, that's not pro-democracy. Yeah. Um, and so, but Brian Hook was testifying and I'm sitting there uh, behind him with a guy from the White House too. And Code Pink, the yeah. anti-war protesters yeah. are there and they're like holding up these big signs behind us. It's just this great picture of Brian, me, and then like Code Pink. <laughs> um, You'll have to so. send me that. We can put it in the videos. So yeah, yeah, see for it. sure. So I was a director of house affairs and then uh, the guy who was the deputy assistant secretary of defense for house affairs over at the Pentagon in the office of the Secretary of Defense uh, was moving on. And uh, folks thought I would be a good fit for that job. And so I interviewed for that and, and was able to move on over to the uh, to the Defense Department in that role. And would this have been under Pompeo? Well, or? I was at state under at state. I was under Tillerson and Pompeo. Yep. When I went over to DOD, Esper was the secretary. Oh, Esper. Right, 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 right. right and right. so, um, so you know, every uh, DOD is massive, right? Yeah. Absolutely massive. So every service branch has their own office of legislative affairs. They call them legislative liaisons. Yeah. They all have offices up here on the Hill. So, you know, the Marines, the Air Force, the yeah. Army, they're the ones who run all the congressional delegations. You know, they're the ones who provide the air travel for, you know, sending members overseas to visit bases and things like that. So all those branches have their own offices of legislative affairs. Mm -hmm. But then the office of the Secretary of Defense has his own legislative affairs office that's supposed to coordinate, communicate with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And um, so I was in that role to help execute. Again, I'm there working for the secretary, but primarily I'm there for Trump, right? I'm there to help ensure that the Trump administration's priorities and policies are communicated to and defended on Capitol Hill. And so then I worked primarily with the House Armed Services Committee and of course, congressional leadership, Speaker Pelosi, uh, majority uh, minority leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, um, helping, you know, execute briefings and and hearings. And uh, yeah, I was uh, it was it was a great job, man. I loved it. Yeah. And so this would have been so you said you did uh, three years at state. And so this would have been like this was 20, 20. 2020. Yeah. Boy, tell it tell us about that. What were what were some of the big uh fights that were going on over at DOD? Yeah, well, I mean, the um uh, one of the main things we do is work on the uh the, you know, the uh how am I? Oh, the NDAA. Yeah. The national I was like, I'm blank, how am I blanking on this massive bill? The National Defense Authorization Act. So that was like right when I got over there, jumped into helping kind of shepherd that process through yeah. and defending administration priorities through that. Um, but yeah, again, some of the biggest fights then, well, well, we were trying to get out of Afghanistan in a, re- in a reasonable way. Yeah. Actually, I helped I helped execute the first public hearing on sort of this Afghanistan peace plan that was proposed by, you know, there was a, our special representative Khalil Zad and then mm-hmm. the State Department, DOD. Um, and, you know, we thought we had a pretty good 
plan in place, but it did not include, you know, breaking glass and jumping out of there the way that the Biden administration ultimately did, uh, which was a disaster. So I worked on that, worked on the Afghanistan drawdown. Um, And again, Trump uh, was trying to ensure that going forward that folks like NATO and the Europeans and Germany, you know, picked up their fair share of the tab for sort of uh, mutual defense efforts over there. Uh, that was another thing that we were working on, too, was trying to get some of our troops home, get our boys back home, you know, and I guess boys and girls, you know, get our boys back home. <laughs> yeah, um, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, that was I mean, it was just trying to trying to he was trying to fulfill his promise to get us out of endless wars. And yeah. that was one of the biggest things I got to work on over there. And so that like four years in, you know, still facing massive mm-hmm. resistance, um, you know, from from the deep state, from, uh, yeah. you know, these unelected bureaucrats. Unaccountable. Um, yeah, and unaccountable. Exactly. Yeah. What, how do we, f- <laughs> I hate to be like, how do we fix it? Yeah, sure. You know, but but specifically, um, you know, American moment is part of how we fix it. But uh, specifically at places like state and, um, you know, the Department of Defense where they're so focused on, mm-hmm experts and security clearances Mm -hmm. and all these things like how do we get our guys in there or at least you know help curtail the influence of all these unaccountable bureaucrats right well we've we have built a massive security state apparatus that essentially runs our government at this point um Mm -hmm. there's a book out there called uh, i think it's called national security and double government um, and I'm blanking on the author's name right now, but it, he, he speaks to how and he was looking at Britain first, but also in the United States where there is this, um, you know, elections come and go, presidents come and go, but the security state remains. Yeah. Right. And the security state, you know, you could think of it as being um, composed of, you know, the State Department, the Department of Defense, the CIA, uh, the FBI, uh, and then the NSA and sort of all the proliferation of these other agencies. And then they all work through the National Security Council, you know, the NSC over at the the White House, which is sort of the clearinghouse um, uh, for the president uh, in terms of these policies and goals. And so this, you know, there are their career and they, they are staffed primarily by 90 plus percent career individuals. Right. They're yeah. not they're not people who are there to serve this president. They're just there to serve in perpetuity in these roles as experts. Right. Right. And, you know, it's so funny in D.C. being an expert literally just means that, like, you believe what everybody has told you to believe and you're mm-hmm. here to defend it. <laughs> yeah. You have Ukraine flag and bio. That's right. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's just I mean, these people, they the only thing that makes them an expert is that they've been saying the same thing for 15 years without ever considering how the world has changed around them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, well, so President Trump has proposed this schedule f yep you know which is you know fantastic and you know not only do we need to get our guys in we need to get these guys out the yeah. obviously the federal bureaucracy is bloated it could be significantly reduced there's a lot of redundancies you know um even like think of what happened what we saw this past week i don't know if you saw this video of samantha powers who's the administrator of the usaid yep. right so one of the things trump proposed and i think is is uh, brilliant and should happen. Like USAID needs to be folded back into the State Department. Yeah. We don't need a separate USAID and State Department. Quite frankly, I think we could cut the whole USAID just in general and get yeah. rid of it. Um, but uh, she's over there uh, filming and essentially publicly announcing that we're going to use American taxpayer dollars to sort of start funding a color revolution in Hungary, right? Because yeah. they use these phrases like um, media accountability. And, you know, and, and what that means is they're going to fund media in Hungary that's going to counter the pro Christian pro-conservative, pro-family agenda over there, right? They're yeah. going to promote, they say, like, good governance and democracy. Mm-hmm. Okay, what they mean by that is, you know, L- the LGBTQ agenda, yeah. right? And those are going to go to George Soros societies, so open society-funded organizations. And so, like, all that stuff, like, has to go. But yeah. you have to realize, I guess what I'm trying to say here, Nick, is you have to realize the euphemisms that the security state uses to execute its agenda. Good oh, governance, yeah media accountability buzzwords of the buzzwords right yeah. what, do, what do they really mean yeah speaking of the lgbtq agenda we can talk about something else that usually goes hand in hand uh with that which is uh support for intervention in ukraine yeah yeah <laughs> so so i think this is one of the the areas that we've seen you know uh the deep state really bounce back i mean just a, a immediately after the, the Trump deep, administration the deep state strikes back <laughs> yeah they just rolled straight into like cool you know we're gonna we're gonna uh, direct a just 
ungodly amount of money, mm-hmm. you know, to this country yeah. <laughs> halfway across the halfway across the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on because um, and I want to go deeper than because uh, a lot of people want to say Trump wouldn't have gotten us into that mess. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to go deeper than that because I don't necessarily think that that is hundred percent the case like mm-hmm. I, I i think he would have some strategic i'm curious to hear what you think about it yeah well i think one of the uh most important things to note about the whole ukraine russia fiasco is that the germans are are deeply deeply responsible for this their their greed and their desire for the completion of the Nord stream 2 pipeline which which the purpose of that is for them to buy, you know, gas from Russia and mm-hmm. get it into Europe was one of the driving factors of this fight. When Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, they eventually stopped short of a, of a major gas line there that Russian gas goes through and they didn't want to destroy that. So that kind of held their ground. And so with the potential completion and the coming online of Nord Stream 2, I think Russia felt like they had the green light to go grab more land in Ukraine. And the Germans are deeply responsible responsible for that. You know, President Trump, uh, you know, told the Germans to their face that this was going to happen and they laughed at him and Mm -hmm. it happened. And he told the Germans they need to do more to fund defense of, you know, of Europe and they don't do it. Right. So the Germans are are deeply to blame. I I think Trump, again, was one of the most successful foreign policy presidents we ever had. But one of the things we left on the board was, you know, completely shutting down that pipeline in a legal and constitutional fashion. Yeah. Uh, we could talk about maybe what Biden has done since it up, then, as opposed maybe. to blowing it up, <laughs> <You> seriously. <know? laughs> and so the Germans are are deeply at fault here. And quite frankly, this is a European problem. And, and honestly, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Germans actually have a fair bit of antipathy for the Ukrainians. So they don't really care about them. So they, they kind of led them into this mess in many ways, don't care about them. But fundamentally, you know, this is a European issue, right? Uh, and so the European allies, uh, Germany, France, the UK, yeah. you know, they're the ones who need to be dealing with this. Like Russia's encroaching upon territory that's adjacent to them, not us. Yeah. And so I think that Trump, if Trump were in office, you know, w- would would Putin have had the guts to invade? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And had that happened, I think our response would certainly look different. And one of the main ways our response would look different is that we would not be sort of continuing to fund uh, you know, European apathy towards this, but forcing them to step up and take accountability for the foreign policy mess on their own soil. Yeah. uh, One of the things that I'd be curious to hear about there, too, is like NATO. You know, what would what would what would Trump what would Trump's relationship with 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 NATO be like? What would would he be charging them to do you know, yeah. in this circumstance? Well, look, NATO uh, NATO is clearly in some ways like outliving its usefulness, right? I mean, yeah. what is the point of NATO if the Russians are going to do this? And of course, Ukraine's not a NATO ally. And thank the Lord for that, right? Yeah. Um, not and, for lack of trying. <laughs> yeah, and we absolutely should not. We should not let them into NATO. But um, so, you know, I think, again, we, we constantly pressured NATO NATO allies to step up and fund more of the NATO efforts and to take more seriously the threats that are most adjacent and, you know, concerning to NATO partners. Um, And so I think that we would be pressuring NATO in such a way that would cause sort of like the derision and the scorn of the foreign policy establishment, as it always did uh, if Trump was in office right now. And maybe, quite frankly, we would tell like we would tell NATO, like, this is your problem, you know, deal with it. And as much as it is, again, Ukraine is not a NATO treaty ally. So yeah. um, I think that's that's critical. And I think in some ways you, you want to keep NATO out of it. You want to keep NATO out of it to a certain extent because we don't want to get embroiled in a land war with Russia. Yeah. Um, that's always a good rule. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, I, it may be shocking to some of our viewers and listeners mm-hmm. to, to be like, wait a minute. This is the guy I see online, like tweeting about Christian nationalism. <laughs> where's all this like? Where, where's the Christian nationalism guy? <laughs> yeah, Why yeah. are we talking about sure. all this, uh, all this uh, security state stuff? So what, what, what kind of happened to you after you know the end of the Trump administration? Mm-hmm. Like, what you 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 went to seminary? What went wrong? What happened? Yeah. No, nothing <laughs> went wrong. I mean, these are all connected, right? I mean, yeah. I have a like I said, the, the issues I'm interested in, I really do think are like America first issues, and that involves both our our presence abroad and our posture here at home. And I am a sort of an unapologetic nationalist in in the most like basic and positive sense of that word, right? I think that nations should look out for themselves first and foremost. In fact, as a Christian, I think the governments of nations are responsible for their citizens. 
citizens, first and foremost, right? God is going to hold the United States government accountable in whatever way that looks like, you know, for how they care for American citizens, fundamentally, not how they care for citizens of the world, right? There's no such mm -hmm. thing as a global citizen. This is also you know, part of the issue with foreign policy and Christian nationalism is this idea that, you know, we're this cosmopolitan, globalized society. And, you know, now, quite frankly, a lot of our elites are that, right? Mm -hmm. They travel the world, they're globe hopping. And, you know, Obama said, you know, I'm a citizen of the world. And that's just not true, right? Like you're a citizen of a country. So uh, during my time in the administration, my time here in DC, I just became increasingly aware of how I think that the vast majority of evangelical Christians in America are getting just absolute junk public theology from many of our leading organizations who speak to these issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, so quite frankly, whether that was from someone like Russell Moore or David French or Tim Keller, I think those guys have, uh, have little to nothing meaningful to say to how American Christians need to think about, you know, engaging in the public arena in a rapidly secularizing, or you could say paganizing yeah. you know, society. And so I want to help Christians in particular think better about what is the what is the role of our faith in the public square. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led me into the Christian nationalism path. Yeah. So what is it what is it exactly that you're that you're doing now? Because I mm -hmm. I think a lot of people might see you online. They're like, oh, he like tweets all day. Cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, like what, what is it, what is it that you're doing to solve that problem? Yeah. Well, so I, um, after my time in the Trump administration, uh, you know, instead of trying to go get a job as a lobbyist at Raytheon or you yeah. know, something like that, <laughs> I went to seminary, um, uh, because I want to make sure that I credential and educate myself, yeah. um, to be qualified to speak to these issues, which you know, I'm against credentialism in general, but sure. it's good to do the study. And so I finished my master's of divinity and I'm now doing a master's of theology in which I hope to particularly explore sort of a systematic theology of the role and scope of civil government. Mm -hmm. You know, what are governments accountable to God uh, to, to do and to provide for their citizens? And uh, so I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, finishing up my uh, my seminary work there. I have had a chance to, you know, have to, you know, put my family through school here again. Yeah. Uh, so I've had a chance to get involved with organizations like uh, the Freedom Center out of Liberty University. So I write regularly for them and now a Center for Renewing America. And so, uh, you know, Twitter, uh, I use Twitter, quite frankly, as like a work tool. Right. So like totally. when, I, when I'm when I'm tweeting, I'm, I'm working in many ways. I'm yeah. trying to get ideas out there and advance these causes that we're committed to. So, yeah, I um, and you are a a Baptist, correct? Yes. Um. So this is a uh, based Baptist. A, a based Baptist. <laughs> uh. Uh. So you mentioned, um. You know, your your college was at you said PCA yeah. college. Mm -hmm. So normally you see uh, it going the other way, <laughs> like Baptists, yeah. you know, joining the PCA right. or, uh, uh, or the OPC or something like that. How, how did you do the the reverse? Yeah, well, uh, I love all the topics we're covering here. I hope folks find this really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, I grew up going to a PCA church um, and my, my parents are wonderful. I, I love them. They are both first generation Christians. Neither one of them grew up in a Christian household. Uh, my dad's brilliant and he was uh, at that time, well, he was, you know, we grew up going to Presbyterian church, though my dad wasn't necessarily committed Presbyterian. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like we're Presbyterians, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I didn't actually become a Christian until after college. So I was one of those guys who like said a prayer when I was nine years old, but that doesn't make you a Christian, right? Yeah. And so I don't think I was actually, I don't think I actually understood the gospel, repented of my sins and trusted in Christ for salvation until I got out of college. And after that, when I came here to Capitol Baptist Church, you know, they explained like, hey, you've never been baptized upon your profession of faith. And this is something that, you know, scripture commands Christians to do. And so I had no problem, you know, being baptized upon my profession of faith. And at that point in time, when I was, you know, evaluating things again, because I was never sort of confessionally or culturally a Presbyterian, um, I was, you know, this was over 10 years ago. I was like, you know what? I believe this. This is, this is what I believe. And I think it's clear that this is what scripture teaches. And so I became a Baptist. Yeah. So I, I I'm interested. The reason I asked that question is because I want to, I want to pull that together with sure. the, with the Christian nationalism sure, yeah. thing, because, um, a lot of the scholars, people that are writing about this stuff, doing this sort of work are Presbyterians or uh, you get a lot of like Anglicans, yeah, too, right. you know, very high church. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's not very much discussion about um, 
if I were to put it in the terms that you used, can Baptist be based? Yeah, that's like, right. <laughs> like what's the, because it's tied up in a lot of like, like covenant theology mm -hmm. and, and, and that sort of thing. So how, how would you differ from, uh, you know, a lot of the, the Presbyterians that mm -hmm. are, uh, Christian nationalists versus sure. your Baptist yeah, well, version? Th yeah. Well, one of the, I mean, Baptist political theology and public theology has been pretty weak uh, yeah. over the last century. It's not always been that way. We've had some brilliant Baptist thinkers who have addressed these issues, I think, from a much more serious perspective, like Andrew Fuller and John Gill. Um, those would be two names just off the top of my head. Uh, you know, and even someone like Carl F.H. Henry, who started yep. Christianity Today, I mean, he has this incredible line in his um in his like six volume commentary, God, Revelation and Authority, where he says like, you know, civilization has to return to the bedrock truth of scripture or it's going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I use that uh, quote uh, as the start of a paper I did on Baptists and Christian nationalism. So first, I want to differentiate myself from a lot of Baptists, because yeah. I think that a lot of Baptists think very poorly about the role of uh, the role of the civil government mm -hmm. and, the, and the way that it actually should be encouraging, you know, Christian values and morality in the public square. Mm -hmm. um, and then so where I'd be different from Presbyterians is yeah, I mean, I just, I don't, uh, they would probably, they would sort of argue that their understanding of the church structure, where you have um, sort of a covenant community where where infants are baptized into it with the expectation that they're going to assume sort of ownership of the faith later on in life, you know, uh, can translate to the state. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with them in the sense that I don't think that everybody within a community has to be a Christian for you to call it a Christian community, right? Mm -hmm. I think you can have Christian families where not everybody is a Christian. You know, you can yeah. have Christian schools, not everybody is a Christian. I think you can have a Christian nation, even if not everybody in that nation is a Christian. You're gonna you're gonna get all the Theo Rose in the comments accusing you of federal vision by saying Yeah. That. <laughs> well I'm not, but yeah, sure. So I mean I think um yeah, like, you know, in I, I think I just have great common cause with a lot of Presbyterians in terms of yeah. our uh, what they're looking for the government to do in terms of promoting the common good and civic virtue. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, brouhaha, I guess is the way I'll put it, about this Christian nationalism stuff. I mean, you got, um, you know, NBC reporters like writing big like exposés you yeah. know right-wing conspiracy to have a christian town yeah um uh you know you have a lot of people uh um online attempting to uh you know fight over kind of like principles and mm -hmm. um philosophy and that sort of thing what i think is funnily enough not talked about frequently enough uh is the actual like practical application sure. you yeah. know like like what would a uh, a christian nation you know run by mm -hmm. christian nationalists <laughs> What would that look like? Apparently, it'd be really scary. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, it's like Hamid's Taylor. Yeah, here. seriously. No, I mean, it's um, it's basic stuff. And that's where, you know, to me, the, you know, the bedwetting over Christian nationalism just makes me chuckle, right? The, the way I got into this, I, I joke, like, as a good reformed bro, that uh, I didn't choose Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism chose me. <laughs> uh, because I, I read this book. I mean, I, so many people have read it, right? By Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, Taking America Back for God. And you can see, uh, and they're it, against this they're stuff against, now. Yeah, by the way, they, like, oh, they well, they've always been against it. Yeah. yeah. So in this book, they try to uh, uh, honestly, Nick, we have we're only having this Christian nationalism conversation because Trump won in 2016. Yeah. Right. And so Trump wins in 2016, and people go searching for the reason that Trump was able to pull this off. And a lot of these sort of sociologists and these academics sort of settled on, oh, it's Christian nationalism. That's mm -hmm. how he won. These scary Christian nationalists put Trump in office, and. Uh, so they write this book, Taking America Back for God, and in it, they essentially, they're, they're regime propagandists who are trying to invent a, a scary sounding term to describe Christians in the public square voting for their values, Yeah. right? So honestly, if you're, I would like people who are hesitant about the term Christian nationalism, hear me say this. If you're a Christian who votes for your values in in the public square and wants to see things like life protected, marriage defended, transgenderism stopped, our borders secured, you know, our government serving our interests, you know, banning pornography. Congratulations. You're, you're a Christian, Christian nationalist. nationalist. <laughs> right. And, and, yeah. and here's the thing is I just find it completely unconvincing those who argue that 
um, what got us here will get us there. And what got get us yeah. there, there being a vision of our life here, our communal life in America that isn't marred by sort of the filth that we're witnessing currently. Like yeah. what stops, how, do, how does classic liberalism stop William Thomas from competing with women you know, at the collegiate level and exposing himself to them as been, has been reported now repeatedly, right? What tools does classic liberalism or principled pluralism yeah. have to say that we're going to get Leah, we're going to get William Thomas out of the girls' locker room? I mean, it, that's what got Leah Thomas, William Thomas, into the girls' locker yeah. room, right? So um, I'm just unconvinced by the competing visions out there. And Christian nationalism, to me, if this is what it is, yeah. is very convincing. The reason I, I, I say that about the book, saying that they're against it now is because I think the title is hilarious. Oh yeah. Taking America back for God. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like right. let's, let's, let's do just that. Um, <laughs> I think, I think one of the, um, in our own way, of yeah, course. Sure. Um, uh, I think one of the interesting things, uh, about, um, th all this discourse is you, I think you'll get some people who are not, um, you know, who haven't read into it as much, uh, will say things like, Oh, we just, we just need to go back to, you know, the, the 1950s or, mm -hmm. uh, or insert time frame before the 1960s, sure. you know, when, when things were, um, better, mm -hmm. uh, what kinds of things do you think? Cause I don't think that's quite the answer, sure. um, uh, that we can just roll the clock back and, and mm -hmm. everything will be fine. What, what kinds of things are kind of baked into the cake as it were? Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we just need to figure out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? I'm not, um, America does have an interesting history, right? Like, and I do think I want to, I want to, you know, recognize that for certain groups in America, when you talk about like going back, you know, no, you know, I don't want any of, you know, black brothers and sisters to feel like we want to go back to an era of like segregation and Jim Crow. Right. Yeah. But that's, but that is, you know, so we've, we've been working to resolve those, you know, fundamental contradictions and, you know, our sins of our past here in America in reasonable ways, but that movement's been totally hijacked now. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, also, I don't want to go back to 1973 either when Roe v. Wade was, you know, put into law. Right. So we've had some, we've had some major moral failings and we have a continual major moral failing in America with, you know, the presence of on-demand abortion, which is still legal more or less in, in almost all 50 states. Right. Like, I mean, there are some, there are many states now in a Dobbs world where abortions are being significantly curtailed. So yeah, I don't think just going, just going back isn't the answer. We need to, we need to chart a path forward and try to work for a consensus on what it means to promote the common good and human flourishing mm -hmm. and what the role of the government uh, is in stopping the spread of dangerous ideologies and quite frankly, destructive behaviors, right? So like um, liberals, you know, there's a great essay by Jacqueline Lang um, on modern liberalism and like from a legal standpoint in which she argues that sort of like modern liberalism, the, the, the theory of the sort of personal autonomy has given us collectively the right to like destroy our civilization. Because mm -hmm. it's this idea that unless I'm doing something that causes you physical harm, the government has no role intervening, right? Yeah. Well, look, man, looking at pornography on your computer screen uh, causes you moral, spiritual and real harm, right? Like mm -hmm. in and that's not something necessarily that the government should just like turn a blind eye to, right? Drag queens, you know, reading to kids is a real harm. It's not a physical harm, but it is a harm. And so that's just one thing in particular. We need conservatives and, you know, Christians and everybody to wrap their minds around the fact that the government has a role in, you know, preventing uh, real moral and spiritual harms that are proliferating across our country right now unchecked. Yeah, you're hitting on a, on a great point here. Um, uh, I, I think you end end up with uh, American Christians in particular with these um, libertarian tendencies, yeah. right? They they libertarians. <laughs> yeah, we've 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 grown up in this kind of pluralistic, you mm. know, society, and like, yes, I'm a Christian, but mm. you know, that's you know, my Muslim neighbor that lives three doors down mm. is like really really nice, and I don't want to do anything to like offend them. You know, you kind of end up with. Uh, uh, you know, uh, folks who don't really want to take a particular, you know, stance on a mm -hmm. lot of like social, moral, cultural, religious issues. Mm -hmm. um, wh why is that the wrong approach? Well, I'm, I can certainly sympathize with people who want a smaller government. But uh, somebody said the other day, I can't remember who it was I was talking to. 
Oh, yeah, now I can remember. I won't use his name, though. He said, like, and he's a conservative. He said, I'm not primarily concerned about a smaller government. I want a good government. And now I think those go hand in hand, right? I think the bigger your government is, the worse it's going to be. Um, so I, I can sympathize with the libertarian impulse for smaller government, for government that stays out of our lives in the ways that it, it should stay out of our lives. And the reality is in America, the government is involved in our lives in all sorts of ways that it should not be. But the problem with the libertarian impulse is that then they cannot see the places where a good government should be stepping in, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a recent, uh, we don't have to get into names, but like there's a recent debate over, um, I believe it's a bill that's either been introduced or being proposed by Josh Hawley, Senator yep. Hawley on requiring uh, users of social media to be 16. Yep. And there are some serious Christians out there who, you know, who would share many of my uh, beliefs and desires for like Christian nationalism, Christian yep. nation or mere Christendom who are saying that this is um, this is the government going too far. And I think that's actually a decent debate to have, right? I mean, we understand, again, thinking about what real harm is, right? Yeah. We understand that, um, you know, we we say you have to be 18 years old to buy a pack of cigarettes, right? So how much harm does smoking do you do physically? Well, how much harm is social media doing to our teenagers spiritually, morally, and yeah. psychologically? I mean, there is all across the board, there is an uptick in depression and suicides and, you know, in sort of hopelessness and despair in the next generation. And I would pin most of that on the fact that they're, you know, spending, you know, five hours a day watching TikTok videos, Yeah, you know, which quite frankly, you know, the real Chinese spy balloon is TikTok anyway. Yeah. And we need to ban it. Right. So I think like, I think that there's a serious debate to be had about if that is an appropriate role of government. And I think libertarians just aren't thinking clearly when it comes to that issue. Yeah. And this is not to discount, uh, you know, these sorts of guys. There are several people uh, that I'm thinking of right now, like, all doing great work, mm -hmm. very important guys, very, very faithful Christians. Yep. Um, uh, but I think like a lot of the reading through a couple of the pieces that have been written about this, um, you know, uh, this kind of like one of the responses that I see is like, oh, well, do you, uh, you know, not want to have the age to drink alcohol, be 21. And they're like, no, it's like your parents responsibility to like mm -hmm. manage that. You know, mm -hmm. I would, I would get rid of that and to really, um, just say like the government should be out of like kind of all of these social things mm -hmm. and it should, it should be up to your, you know, your parents to, mm -hmm. to, to sort that out. Um, what kinds of, of, of things do you think, um, are, are going to be missed if we, if we go down that path? Um, uh, and not just like social media, I mean, any potpourri of issues, if you mm -hmm. take this kind of ideological conclusion down the line, mm -hmm. um, you know, if we had a, a libertarian, somewhat Christian nation, like yeah. what, what, what would that look like? Where, where are some pitfalls where that could go wrong? Well, I don't think you can ultimately have a libertarian Christian nation, right? Exactly. I would understand libertarianism yeah. and sort of Christian nationism, Christian nationalism to be in contradiction with each other because the yeah. libertarian approach is this idea that the government is somehow some sort of like morally neutral arbiter that is sort of just intervening in your affairs uh, when sort of like you're being denied justice or, you know, your, or your physical life and property and person is being, you know, impeded upon by somebody else. And I just think that honestly is a fundamentally unchristian approach, right? Like, so, you know, you could have that conversation on the grounds of just sort of uh, political theory, but then from a Christian perspective, we recognize that all laws are moral judgments mm -hmm. and, and what a government does and does not enforce sends a moral signal to the population about what's permissible and what isn't. Um, and so right now, you know, we have a, you have a, we essentially have progressive LGBT nationalism in our country right yep. now. And and so many of our government's you know, laws, and you think about like the, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, right? Yeah. That is a religious bill. That sends a religious message to our country about mm -hmm. what marriage is and isn't. Yeah. Right. And so like that's like that's like sort of the polar opposite of Christian nationalism. And and you know, I know our Christian brothers who are libertarians don't follow this argument through to its logical conclusion, but so many libertarians here around Capitol Hill, I mean, I can't, I, it was crazy, man. Back when I was working on the Hill when in the run-up to Obergefell, how many Republican staffers, you know, just parroted this line, the government has no business being involved in marriage. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? That's like one of the most important things the government should be seeking to preserve and protect, right. you know, which is traditional marriage, which is the only marriage. There's no other thing that's marriage other than one man, one woman united for life. And uh, so I think that, you know, 
that's what you get. At the end of the day, if you follow the libertarian impulse and path, you get to a conclusion like the government has no business being in marriage. Yeah. And that's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. The Defense of Marriage Act is is their creed yeah. for their progressive and LGBTQ religion. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, William, thanks so much for for coming on. Where can people uh, find you, keep up with the things that, that you're writing, the things sure. that you're working on and keep up with all the things you're going to be doing in the future. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter and uh, you can uh, find me on Facebook and Instagram too. And um, also on Gab, I hang out nice. over there with some friends <laughs> from time to time. Uh, and then I write regularly for the Freedom Center out of Liberty University. That's the Standing for Freedom Center. They're doing fantastic work, um, really sort of defending, you know, Christian truth and values and bringing a, a Christian perspective to these issues. You know, one of the things I try to do there is I try to give Christians, pastors, people in the pews, um, you know, sort of uh, alternative and better takes on the most pressing public issues of the day. Right. Like, quite frankly, I'm not going to send somebody to the Gospel Coalition, you know, yeah. but I would send someone to Freedom Center. And and so you can find me there and also uh, now a visiting fellow with the Center for Renewing America, where I'll be continuing to engage on issues related to foreign policy and Christian nationalism and uh, try to help, you know, restore this. Uh, the the mission of Center for Renewing America is to restore the consensus, you know, that, you know, for God, for country, for community. Right. And I think that's that's critical. So you can find me there and all here right. on the American Moment podcast. Yeah. Well, thanks so much uh, for all of that information and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Nick. I told you that was uh, going to be quite uh, an episode. Um, make sure to uh, look for all the things that William's writing um, and and working on. Uh, he's going to be doing a lot of interesting things over, over the coming years um, and we look forward to seeing all of it. Uh, as always, please uh, subscribe um, uh, to our podcast. Hit the little, if you're on YouTube, hit the little bell to be notified when a new episode or a new uh, clip drops. You can find uh, more information about American Moment and all of our programming at AmericanMoment.org. Um, and we thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Mm -hmm.